Well, we'd like to welcome a number of folks who are here probably for the first time or our guests today. We hope you feel at home and have enjoyed the service thus far. In fact, we sometimes will call the music time our worship time. And we've tried to clarify this, that worship is really something we do every day. Um, in your car, driving, you may be listening to something or walking or reading God's Word is It should be a 24-7 way of life. But music is a great way to take words, meaningful words, and just make them part of your being. If you found that too when you listen to a song or something that just the the, the melody is catchy, you know, you like it, the message is, is good. We have a time now where we open up for a brief period of time God's Word and share from that. And I would say there are two primary objectives that I have each week. One is that you come to know Jesus Christ in a personal, meaningful way. Not in a religious way, but in a personal, meaningful way. To know Him as your personal Savior and as your friend. And the second objective would be that wherever you are in your walk, wherever you are in your life, that what we study today will help you move forward, that you'll be able to grow through that. That's been our theme pretty much this year as we started into 2014 at Valley, is growing, that we want to grow. And we're not talking about growing by numbers of people in here necessarily, or buildings that we build, or adding programs uh, to our organization. But we're talking about you, about me, about growing in our faith and developing in our Christian life. And so that's our, that's our prayer. I pray that <clears throat> every day. And I, I ask you to join me in praying for those around us, that, that God would help us in that process. We've been looking at a letter that was written a very long time ago by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> and he writes, he's written a number of letters that we have preserved for us today. But this letter in particular to his friends in the city of Philippi, is really an encouraging letter. More so than I think than any other book that I've uh, read uh, or letter that I've read is this letter is tremendously encouraging. And these, these are dear friends of his. And he's talking about the Christian life. And last week we, we got to the end of our discussion of this and, and Paul described it this way to them. He said, work it out. I want you to work it out. In other words, work out this Christianity in practical ways. And there are two sides to that. Excuse me. One is that God is at work in you. And then we have a part where we work. God's work is pouring out His grace. God's work is doing, really doing all of the things that need to be done. And God's work is sending His Son and answering prayer, and interceding for you. And our work is really pretty simple. It's believing. It's trusting in Him. That's our part, is believing what God has said. So as he's gone through this section of Scripture that we have preserved for us today, and he said to you and he said to me, I want you to work this out. See how God has been working on your behalf. Now you exercise your faith to believe what he has said. He's going to now move into 
in verse 14 of Philippians chapter 2, a discussion, and the very first topic of discussion that he has now in working this out is going to probably be the very first thing you teach your kids when they're little. Now, I could ask you to raise your hand and tell me, what's the very first thing you're going to teach your kids when they're little? Quit whining. (laughs) Or we'll say the subject of complaining. Complaining. Now, why would... Why would Paul talk to his dear friends about complaining? And I think it's because he realizes that this has become a problem for them. We'll get into the last part of this letter, and he talks about, and we're not picking on women, but there are two particular women that we talk about, Yodius and and, uh, Sotachi, we call them. They've got a little problem between the two of them, and, and, and it's affecting really the, the joy and the health of this church. But it's more than just these two. It's something that uh, is, is really everywhere. And so if we could title this, we would say, Quit Complaining. His challenge now to these believers is quit complaining, and the verse is the very first uh, part of verse 14, he says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. Some of your translations may read, do everything without mumbling or complaining. And there's really two levels. There's, uh, this verse is on an emotional level and how you feel, the mumbling, complaining. It's kind of like we're muttering under our breath our complaints. There's also an intellectual side, uh, an intellectual argument about what's going on. And so Paul is addressing something that is in their culture, in this, this uh, where they're living in Greece. It's, it, it's actually in their church. And wouldn't you know it, anything that's a problem out there is usually a problem here. <laughs> we like to say, well, those other people struggle with that. But he sees his dear friends in their culture, and even when they're meeting together, they've got a problem. And the problem is complaining. And it's also here for us today. What I love about these letters that Paul writes, they are so applicable to today. You can read it and say, this is written almost 2,000 years ago, and yet how can you find anything more relevant, more current, or more helpful to us in what we struggle with today? Because I would say this, that complaining dominates our culture. It dominates our culture. And you may just think of someone right now. Can you think of someone that you know that complains a lot? Can you? You probably think of several people. I want you, another thing we can do is if you want to get a picture of what a complaining person looks like, do a selfie. And if you do that and take a picture, then you'll have another evidence of someone who tends to complain. Because I don't think there's one person seated here today, or standing, <laughs> I'll have to add that, that does not struggle with complaining. And it's something you do emotionally, as he says, and something you do intellectually. And you think back through a normal day of all the things you complain about. And I started listing these, and I'd have it take too long to do this. Bad hair or no hair, 
You have lines in your face. Someone drank all the milk. Snagging your shirt on the way out the door. You get into traffic again. You spill your coffee, but only when you're wearing khaki pants. That's me. Hot weather, an impossible boss, incompetent co-workers, deadlines, pressures, and your salary just got cut. Financial stress again. A thousand interruptions on the way home, more tra traffic, stop at the store, long lines, and the one you pick is the wrong line. Noisy neighbors, noisy kids, difficult spouse, government taxes, in-laws, and the next trip you're taking, you're in the middle seat on the airplane. And I have to do all this tomorrow. So why do we entitle this Quit Complaining? And I think that it could be, as a parent, you're thinking, well, I want my kids to quit complaining because I'm just sick and tired of hearing it. And Paul could have had that attitude. He said, I want you all to quit your complaining because I'm sick and tired of hearing it. But I think it goes deeper than that. And I hope it goes deeper than that for you and your children. Why would I want my kids not to complain? Because I don't want that permeating their character. Because I know this, that a complaining person is robbed of their joy. Not only do you lose your joy as a complaining person, but everyone that is touched by your complaint is losing their joy. And you remember the overriding theme that we've had with Philippians? Paul is talking about being joyful. He's talking about being joyful at all times, which seems really impossible to do. Living in these bodies, living in this life, it seems impossible. But one of the greatest things that will rob us of joy personally and rob everyone around us of their joy is when we complain. So my prayer for you is not, and for anyone, I would hope it would be, that it's not that you stop complaining so that we can all have peace and quiet around here. But my prayer is that you can stop complaining and find what it means to have joy in the Lord always. That's, that's where we want to arrive. So I've jotted down this morning four compelling reasons to quit complaining. The first is, for God's sake. So I'd say this, for God's sake, quit complaining. Verse 15 says, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. For God's sake, quit complaining. Because we are children of God, we should reflect God. We should reflect His nature. <clears throat> and when people see us, they begin to see things about God. When we think about this, and we've talked about how our joy is connected to how we view God. And we've said it, said it in these terms, all joy is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Now I realize that the sovereignty of God is a loaded, a loaded word. But when we say God's sovereignty, like, like a king is sovereign, God is sovereign in that He possesses all of these attributes. And because He possesses all of these attributes, I can be at peace and I can be content. And when I keep my eyes looking on Him and seeing Him as He is, it brings a settledness into my life. We've mentioned, and I'll just mention a few of these. One, the first thing I think about God is God's good. God is good in all that He is and all that He does. He's good. 
You say, well, how can all of the... We have a whole discussion on the problem of evil. Because there's a lot of evil in the world. And evil is coming to the world because sin is coming to the world. But God and who He is and God and what He does is always good. He is also wise. God knows everything. Not only does He know everything in a factual sense, He knows how it is all related together, how it's going to work and how it's going to turn out. He knows the, the future. He knows the past. He knows everything present. He knows everything of every fact of all of the world. God knows everything. So He's good. And, he, and He's all knowledgeable about all things. And then God is all powerful. God has all power. He holds the universe together. There is nothing that God cannot do. And then I would say this. He's there. You say, where? He's there and He's here. God's not distant from us. God's here. He's here. So the God who is love and who has all knowledge and wisdom and who has all power and ability and who's right here, right now, is the God I see. And you know what? That settles my mind. But if there's one of these things that you don't believe, or don't see, you start to get worried. You say, like, God's really good, but He can't do anything about it? I'm worried. <laughs> or God is all-powerful, but He is not very nice. Then we're worried about it. But you take all of these, we call the fullness of how we would describe the goodness and the greatness of God. And I think the little children's prayer sums up all of His attributes pretty well. God is great. God is good. <laughs> he is. And when I see Him as He is, there's a settledness that comes into my life, and there is no cause for complaint. Why? Because I see God's good. I don't need to complain. I know everything He's doing is going to be good. God knows what's going on, so I don't need to complain. God has all power. He'll be able to get it done in the right time, and He's here. I have found this personally, that when I falter in my life, by the way, pastors falter. You don't need to be around them very long to see that most anybody in the world will falter and stumble in their life. But when I stumble in my life, it's usually one of two problems. It could be, first, <clears throat> there's something that I'm not seeing about God. It's true, but I don't see it. Or it's something I'm refusing to believe. But when I see Him as He is, and I believe in who He is, it settles my heart. So when I say that I would, my desire would be to not complain, the most important and compelling reason would be for God's sake. God's plan for your life, and I can tell you this, I don't know where God wants you to live or what kind of job He wants you to work or what you're going to name your kids. I don't know that. But I know this is God's will for you because it says it in His Word. God wants you to be full of joy. And God wants you to be content. And God wants you not to be a complaining person. So for God's sake. Secondly, the second compelling reason would be for your sake. So Paul is talking to his friends because he really cares about them. And he's, and he's giving this letter, writing this letter for their sake. And he says in verse 15 that you may become blameless and pure children of God. And then he goes on to say, without fault. 
And without fault means without a blemish. Or you could say, say it this way, that uh, it's not dirtied up or messed up. He wants you to be without blemish. And so if you have a friend or someone you love, and they were always mumbling, always griping, always murmuring, always com- they complain about everything, and they're your friend, you know they're miserable. People who complain are miserable people. That's not what God wants for you. And everyone around them is becoming miserable. And what happens, I believe, is it's infectious. When I start to complain, my kids start developing a complaining spirit. And it really is reflecting the fact that we don't see God as really a part of anything. I've kind of shut all that off and like many in the world today become so self-concerned, self-absorbed, looking to my own little world that I mutter and I mumble and I grumble and I complain and I argue with God. You're a miserable person. Now, there's not a person here that wants to live that way. You say, no one says, I want to be a complaining person. I like it. But we do live that way. That's the fact. And we're caught into habits. The habits are that we, we do this naturally. It comes to us very easy. And I think you come back to this idea of your own children. Is, yes, you want a peaceful, quiet home, so stop complaining. Quit your whining. I don't want to hear anymore. And I'll have to admit that a lot of times for me, that was my motivation. I just don't want to hear all the whining. But as a parent, genuinely and really, I, I don't want that in their character. Because I know it is a self-destructive sin. So my concern is for your sake, for you as a person. And if I have a son for him, that he have the attitude that Christ has. We've read, read back in chapter 2, verse 5, the attitude that is in Christ not an attitude of complaint. So third, the third compelling reason is for the world's sake. When I say the world, I would say the mass of humanity that is around us. Paul goes on in verses 15 and 16, he says, because as we are here in a warped and crooked generation, he said, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So how does Paul describe the world? You know, and, and I would basically say if we walked out the doors, we go over to Flatirons Mall, or we go out to massive humanity, say there's a world, it's everybody. It's everybody. And what he's saying is that generally speaking, in the world at large, people have been affected by sin. And he, he describes them as warped and crooked. And the, the word that, that it uses is scolios, which which we get scoliosis. We have a, a spine that gets crooked. <clears throat> so he says it is, it is crooked, it is distorted, it is warped, it is abnormal. In other words, God made man and God made woman to have fellowship with Him. When God created Adam, God created Eve, 
He desired relationship and unity and harmony and joy and peace and contentment and no complaining. But what happened, in, and if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, what led to their sin? They started complaining. <laughs> in fact, uh, they're saying, well, you know, we, if we can eat of this, with this one fruit that we can't eat of, why can't we eat of this? Why would God do that? And it leads down that path. So this is the world. He also describes it, if you think in, in light of it, he said, you as believers are like stars. The backdrop is darkness. And without hope, without Christ, without salvation, without a way, everything is darkness. But you have to realize this, that if, if you were to say Say you go out and go to Mile High Stadium or to a big mass of people somewhere, and you say, look at all of those people. And let, let's say that none of them believe in Jesus Christ. They are twisted and crooked and distorted in darkness. And you know what else about those people? God loves them. God loves them. He loves all sinners. And he didn't come for religious people. He didn't come to save church people. God came for sinners. Probably the most beautiful verse in all of the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when you see... And I, and I know for me, you see a lot of things going on in the world. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, and you think that is so disgusting. And we almost hate those people. Can I tell you this? God loves them all. God loves them all. So that's how he sees them. Yes, crooked. Yes, distorted. Yes, depraved. But he loves them, and he loves them enough to send his only son to die on a cross for them. So how does God describe us? He say, those of us who believe. We're not any better than those sinners. We're not. But we've believed. We've put our faith and trust in Jesus. So we are God's children. And we are righteous because he made us righteous. So how does he describe us? And I love how he describes us. <laughs> he says, you are like stars in the sky. You are like stars in the sky. I know you may not have thought of yourself like that. I'm a star. I am a star in the sky against the backdrop of the agony of humanity and the depravity of this world and the hopelessness of this world. We who believe shine like stars. It's amazing. He doesn't expect us to get all our stars together and put them in a box, tighten it up. That's what I think church has become, to be honest with you. A lot of churches become all the little stars, kind of go get into their box, close it up, and we all enjoy our light together. God did not call us into holy huddles. God did not call us to build churches like castles, put a moat around them, and put a drawbridge 
God called us as a church to be salt and light, the light to shine in the darkness, the stars to be scattered in the darkness, to work in those jobs, to live in those neighborhoods, to live your life, to have friends who are sinners. Jesus was criticized for that. He hung around lost people. He hung around depraved people. He spent time with them. He's criticized for that. The only people he ticked off were the religious ones, the self-righteous ones. So our light is not to be put in a box. It's not to be huddled together. It's not to be kept to ourselves. Or as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, hid under a bushel. No, light is to shine. Stars that are in the universe. That's how we're described. And what does light do? Well, light gives, provides truth. It provides a sense of safety. Light provides knowledge. Light gives us direction. Well, how do I, how am I light? Well, I think it's very simple. The more time you spend with Jesus Christ in relationship, the more you reflect Him who is the light of the world. He is the light of the world. God is light. Jesus is the light of the world. When I spend time with Him, my life reflects light. And He says this, that you are shining as lights, holding forth the word of life. In other words, we are presenting the word of hope and life and truth and reaching out to others. So reflecting His light, reaching out the word to others, and you can see why if, if I am reflecting light, and it's not anything good about me, but I reflect light because I spend time with light. And then I'm reaching out in humility with words of hope and words of encouragement that if I am complaining all the time, I destroy all of that. That's why this third compelling reason is for the sake of the world. Why do we not complain for the sake of the world. Because people who need an answer need hope and need help. If we as believers are always complaining and griping and whining and muttering about everything that's happening in our lives, we destroy all of that. As I said before, it's not too good when I take the picture of myself and I realize that I do complain. May we may ask how much. Sometimes I do it under my breath. Sometimes I just do it to God. Sometimes I'm vocal about it. But it's destructive. So for the sake of the world. And then finally, I'm going to close with this. is The last compelling reason, I would say it this way, for our sake. And this is interesting because Paul comes into a very personal side of himself for, for him. So I say for our sake, for those who have invested in others, you want to see them follow through. Paul has spent a lot of time teaching these people, praying for them, helping them, processing them. And he said, you know what? <clears throat> I'll get, give you the Reader's Digest. He said, I don't want to spend my whole life pouring out, and he, he uses the description here, pouring my life out like a drink offering. The pagans even would do that as a kind of a sacrifice. Pour, pour out my life, uh, even unto death, pouring out my life to death. 
I don't want to do all of that for you and have run this race in vain. But I want to have joy. And that's why he's saying, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That the joy is this, is when, when I, and we have, we have three kids. They're not, they're not really kids anymore. Kind of grown up. But I want them to get this. Diane wants them to get this. And because I, I would feel this as a dad, to have your kids grow up and all they do is gripe and complain, I would feel like, oh. and it's not because I have to listen to it anymore because they're not in the house. But as a father, it would hurt deeply to know there's this spirit of grumbling and complaining and griping and murmuring about all the things that are going on in their life. You kind of feel like, I, I fulfilled my responsibilities in vain. They did, I, didn't, I didn't get the job done. So that's why Paul is, is, is even appealing to them here at the end, is that he spent so much time teaching, pouring out his life, and he really wants them, he wants them to get this and believe this, to have joy, to be thankful in all that they do, and not to have a complaining spirit. So this morning, we've looked at four compelling reasons for God's sake, quit complaining. For your sake, for the world's sake, and then for our sake, as Paul would say. But I think we could sum it up with one picture. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. If you take a look at this cross, and on that cross is where Jesus Christ came into this world and loved you more than you can comprehend. He suffered. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross, put in the ground, and put to death. And he never opened his mouth and complained. And he did that I want you, so you need to take this personally. He did that for you. He did that for you. But not only did He do that for you, to give you eternal life, to wash away your sins, He rose from the dead to give you life. And He lives today for you. He lives today for you. And He's preparing a home in heaven for you. So if Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, He rose again and offers to you eternal life and lives every day to help you and has a home in heaven for you and He has never opened His mouth in complaint, what do we have to complain about? I put my hand over my mouth and so should you. So should all of us. Whenever I would complain about anything, I know this, that Jesus already endured it and suffered it without complaint. So who am I to complain about anything? And you know what? Those murmurings and complaints and arguments with God and, and 
struggles that I used to have coming out of my mouth, you know what they're replaced with? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So here is my challenge to you. Quit complaining. Greatest reason is Christ. Quit complaining. There are three thoughts I want to give to you. First of all, confess your sin. Because when we complain, it's really a a sin against God. All complaining is a sin against God. Now, when I say confess, it's not that God needs to forgive you because He did that on the cross, but you acknowledge that fact. You confess the reality. God, I'm wrong about that. Number two, recalibrate your view of God. In other words, there's something you're not seeing about God. When you get a fresh view of this cross that we have pictured for you, when you get a fresh view of what Jesus did for you, it recalibrates your thinking. And then finally, and these, these will be the two words that I'd like for you to leave with today, <clears throat> is to give thanks. Is give thanks. I think that it's hard for us sometimes. There are a lot of things you can, I, I thank the Lord for my wife, I thank the Lord for my kids, I thank the Lord for my house, I thank the Lord for my food. Now I realize that, and that's good to do. There are a lot of things. If you were to stop, maybe go home and sit, on, sit out on the porch today because that's nice, <laughs> and start thinking of all of the things that you could thank God for, you'll find yourself there for a very long time. I thank God, I thank God, I thank God, I thank God. But here's my challenge to you. <clears throat> there are some things that you have not thanked God for, and you're having a hard time thanking God for. And it's probably because you don't understand how any good is in it. You don't understand how it's going to work out. You've not been able to resolve any of these issues. And so it's going to be an exercise of your faith to believe God is good and He is all wise and He is all powerful and He is there. It's going to take an exercise of faith to thank God anyway. But when you have believers, humble, simple Sinners that have been saved by God's grace. And we're filled with praise and filled with thanksgiving. That's when we're really shining as lights. That's when our hearts are full. So it's not just for God being pleased for God's sake. It's for your sake to be a joyful person. It's for all those around you. It's for this entire world. And I know this. As I speak to you this morning, this is a problem I have. Okay. And I know you have. We all have it to varying degrees. And this is, a, this is a place where we have to grow. And God moves us along by His grace. That's His work. By our faith, that's our response and our work to Him. To be a thankful, grateful, non-complaining people. A people that exalt His name to consciously work for this. I don't think this is an easy thing. You don't fall into this. You just wake up tomorrow and say, I don't, I'm not complaining anymore. I think it's something we focus on and we pray about together that God would help us to find this joy that is a purpose of our lives. Let's bow our heads together as we close. Our heads are bowed and in just a moment I'm going to take some time to pray.
But before I pray, I'd like to just ask you to take some quiet time where you're seated and ask the Lord for His help in this, in your life personally. Would you do that? Just, you don't need a fancy prayer, but ask God to help you in this, to confess the fact that you're complaining, to get your view back of that picture of the cross of all that Christ has done, is doing, and, and has promised to do for you. And He did all of that and is doing all of that without one word of complaint. And then thank Him, and thank Him, and thank Him. And ask Him to help you to thank Him for things that are hard to thank Him for. A life full of praise and of joy and contentment. This is God's will for you. You take some time to pray. Lord, you know our state. You know the truth of the matter. There's nothing we hide from you. You know all our words and all our thoughts, all our past, all our future. And we humbly come to you today confessing our sins. There's so many, Lord. And yet we know that you are gracious and quick to forgive and quick to cleanse and quick to help. So we're so glad that you're a forgiving, gracious God. We confess all of these things to you. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are. Help us to see you in the picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, who loved us so much to give his life for our sins, who took it all upon himself without complaint, without one word of complaint, though he endured the greatest injustice in all of history. And Lord, give us thankful hearts, hearts full of praise and thanksgiving and joy to start and never end thanking you for what you've done, for what you've promised. And we even pray for those things that are very hard for us to thank you for right now, things we don't understand, things we can't comprehend, things we haven't figured out. Help us to have faith to believe that you are true in what you say. Help us through it. Lord, we pray for this week as we engage the many challenges of life, as we leave this place, that you go with us. We pray for Paul and Jill as they head to Indonesia, for Sarah and the birth of their little one. 
Pray for Mike and Diane and their families. They travel back today or this week to watch over them. And for all of us, Lord, as we need you, help it to become more real for us every day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The men are coming. We receive our offering. And I'll just echo what Matt said. We confess, recalibrate, give thanks. That's what we do when we sing. So sing this with us as we close our service and the men take the 